Okay, thank you, Brother Dale and Marilyn. Appreciate that. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles tonight to uh, Psalm 21, and we'll look at another couple of verses in here and um, have kind of a strange title. I hope it's a little bit thought-provoking because uh, with every sermon, you kind of want to answer the question, so what? Uh, You can say a lot of things, but if it doesn't mean anything, we don't think about it, then it's kind of pointless and it never should be that way. But uh, here's what we find David in this psalm, where remember in Psalm 20, he was kind of praying for victory, and now in Psalm 21, he's praying from victory. He's won the battle, and then he uh, seems to be rejoicing in something we don't rejoice in or even talk a whole lot about, and that is in the wrath of God. Some people have trouble with that and they say how could God be wrathful I can see him being loving and kind and merciful and gracious and of course we know he certainly is all of that we've been the recipients of those things but that's not the whole story as we think about God and some people think well how could just you know all of us sin how could that make us worthy of an eternity in hell or anything like that and uh, we kind of struggle with that. How could good people, seemingly good people in our lives, you know, uh, spend an eternity separated from God? And why would he be so angry about all of that? And what that does is that really downplays our sin. We think it's not really all that bad. We don't think it's that big of a deal. But think of it like this. If somebody broke into your house and uh, let's say that they murdered somebody that was living with you, a spouse or a child, and then they robbed everything that you had, tied you up, threw you in a closet, and nobody found you for days, let's say, would you want the judge simply to say, well, everybody makes mistakes, and uh, well, at least you didn't kill five people, you only killed one, and you didn't rob 30 houses, you just robbed that one, so time off for good behavior. I mean, wouldn't that kind of bug you, and wouldn't that tick you off? And uh, sometimes when you watch true crime shows and uh, maybe a podcast or something like that, you find that the families that are victimized by these criminals, by these, especially when it's violent, one of the things they will spend sometimes uh, decades trying to get justice because they want somebody to pay for that crime. And that's how they... uh, I know they never get closure, but that's the word that's always used. Now they can have closure. It really doesn't do that, but that's what they want. They want justice in all of that. Where does that desire come from? Where does the desire come from in human beings? Dolphins don't care. Whales don't care. Monkeys don't care. Elephants don't care. But for some reason, human beings care about justice. We want something to happen. We want crime to be punished. We want evil to be done away with. We want a deterrent to um, all of the things that could happen in life. We don't want them to happen. And uh, where did we get that? And it's because we're made in the image of God. And God is a God of truth. And God is a God of love and mercy and grace. Of course he is. But he is also a God of wrath. And he's a God of justice, and his justice and his wrath and everything else is perfect. It's unlike ours. 
We get mad at the drop of a hat and we get mad and go off, uh, as the old timers would say, half cocked when we don't know the whole story. We don't know the whole issue. We don't really know what's going on. But God never, never does that. His wrath is always appropriate. It is always, his justice is always perfect in that. And we don't talk enough about that. So let's put ourselves in David's shoes. Let's go back about 3,000 years or so. And let's think about what life was like in the days of David. Death was not uncommon. Death was something that people faced all the time because of disease, because of war, because of, well, in David's case, there uh, were kings. There was almost always some type of an assassination attempt on a king. There's always somebody who thinks that they were not treated fairly or their tribe was not treated fairly or another nation that wants your land and your possessions and all of your resources uh, maybe for a strategic, maybe you own a land that has high mountains and they would like to put a fortress up on top of that mountain so they could see where the enemy's coming from. So they just conquer you, take over your land, and then they build whatever they want to build. That was life back in the days of King David. And so a king could never have the life that maybe King Charles in England would have, not, not in David's day, because a king then was expected to lead the army into battle. Can you imagine King Charles III on a horse leading the British army into battle? I can't feature that. But David had to do that, and he had to do that regularly. And the time when he didn't do that, he got into a lot of trouble. That's when the thing with Bathsheba took place. It was in the spring of the year when kings go forth to war. And at that time, David probably said, I've had enough, and uh, whatever is going on at our borders... Joab could take care of that, and so he sent his general instead of going himself. But typically, David would be out there leading the charge, leading the battle. And after all, that's why Israel wanted a king back when they told the prophet Samuel, give us a king like the other nations. They wanted somebody they could see leading them into battle, uh, other than a god that they couldn't see. And they wanted uh, him to look good on a white horse and with his crowns and his shields and his weapons and his robes and all of that. They wanted him to lead them into battle to inspire them so they could go out with their bows and arrows and their spears and say, for king and country. You know, we all like those slogans. Remember the Alamo and remember Pearl Harbor and all of those kind of things. Well, they were no different. And so they wanted that king. That was the job of the king. So being a king in the days of David, pretty dangerous. Yeah, not, not a cushy life. I mean, it had its perks, don't get me wrong. But it was also a job that was under constant threat. Because if you weren't in a battle or something like that, uh, that's why they had uh, the food tasters and the cupbearers. Because there was always somebody trying to kill him. That's the only way you could be king. You didn't run for office. You uh, assumed office. And uh, that was by the death of the guy that was on the throne. So David is living under. And, that, and that's why I think you see so many times in the Psalms. Him crying out to God. Save me and deliver me. Good night David. Have you ever heard of victory in Jesus? And uh, why don't you rest in the Lord? Well. Keep in mind, he lived a dangerous, dangerous life. And uh, people were always trying to get to him. 
and to assassinate him. They're not always recorded in the Bible, but that's just the way that life was. So now David has come back from war. He has been victorious, no doubt has lost some friends, no doubt has lost some of his officers, and um, he doesn't really want to be going to war all the time. And he gets tired of the other nations thinking, okay, this time we've got them. Now, we've never been able to conquer them before, but this time will be different. This time we can get them. And so in the spring of the year, they come and they encroach the borders. They attack and they raid some of the border cities and the coastal cities. And if they get the chance, they'll make their way all the way into Jerusalem and they'll topple David off of his throne. So when David thinks about God and he thinks about the grace and the love and all of that that he has shown Israel, David is also wanting justice for all of the people who want to wipe Israel out. And isn't it, isn't it amazing that tiny little Israel and that tiny sliver of world population called the Jews, so many people want to kill them. And even in our day, they're wanting to kill them. Doesn't it make you heart sick when you see uh, young people at colleges and universities carrying a Palestinian flag and calling for the genocide of the Jews. I thought we were long past that. I thought we learned our lesson with Hitler in World War II. I thought we said we'll always remember and never again. And yet here it is again. And some of those people, when they say from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, that means there's no room for the Jews. And then others come right out and say, kill the Jews. Genocide is what they're looking for. And it's kind of always been that way since the beginning and so it's a troubling troubling thing so if you put yourself like we talked about at the beginning with the crime thing if you're the family affected by crime you want somebody to execute justice on the criminals and if you're David you want those who are trying to assassinate you you want justice on them because it's your life it's your throne after all and if you have nations that are constantly attacking you and they want you to be driven into the sea, they want you to be wiped out, you and all of your people, well, then you want justice. So David sees this side of God and he doesn't question it. In fact, he's asking for it. He's rejoicing in it because this is what God is going to do against his enemies. This is what protects David. This is what does the enemy in. And so look at uh, Psalm 21, and look at verse 8 and 9. Okay, just two verses. Your hand will find all your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. And you shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath, and uh, the fire shall devour them. Oh, that's not a good scripture for Christmas, is it? That doesn't sound like peace on earth and goodwill toward men. That sounds pretty serious and dangerous, and it sounds kind of rough. But yet it's also the truth. It's the side of God that we ignore. God hates sin. And the Bible says he's angry with sinners every day. He is offended by the laws that we have broken, and he hates any kind of iniquity. So when we read this, we shouldn't be surprised. David is talking about this 
in terms of his enemies, in terms of Israel's enemies, and yet they never learn. They never learn. Whenever we read through history about people that come against Israel, it, it never goes well for them, does it? It always ends up with them eventually being defeated, paying a high price. When we uh, look at nations that have turned their back on Israel, the British Empire, back in uh, when you go back in the early part of the 20th century, it was large. It spanned the globe. And that's why they used to say the sun never sets on the British flag because they had so many uh, colonies and so many places where their empire, where the king or the queen ruled, okay? And uh, they were amazing. And all of the resources and the land and the span of it was just incredible. And then in... um, uh, I guess, I won't guess exactly when, but they started in the early 1900s to not only quit backing Israel, but remember they ruled Palestine, the area called Palestine. And the Balfour Declaration of, I think it was 1917, declared that a part of Palestine would be a homeland for the Jews. And then after World War II and after the Holocaust and all of that, then the United Nations said, yeah, let's go ahead and let's give them this land and have a, we got to do something with the Jews and we don't want them. So let's put them back in their original homeland and give them a little sliver of land. And the British then started backing away from Israel. And in just the short span of the 20th century, they went from a worldwide empire to basically now just a few islands in the North Atlantic. Why did that happen? Because they didn't support the Jews. Look at what happened to Germany after what they did. They spent a long time defeated in the war and then divided a communist half and a democratic half of Germany and families divided, territory divided for a long, long time. And when you look through history and you look at the different empires, the ones that were kind to the Jews and supported them, they did rather well. The ones that didn't, well, they fared poorly. And uh, when we were in Israel, we went to a museum, and the whole museum was dedicated to uh, basically thanking America for our support of Israel all through the years. And most of the people, they had holograms in there. It was really high-tech and really kind of cool. And we could hear them speak and hear about their lives and what they did to support the state of Israel. And so many of them were Americans, and they were very grateful. We were out on the Sea of Galilee, and our tour group, we were on on a boat. And uh, the Israelis that were, um, I guess, piloting the ship... Uh, they went and took the Israeli flag down that was on the back of the boat and they put an American flag up there and they played the Star Spangled Banner for all of us. And of course we stood and saluted and sang and it was very moving. And they do that because they are so appreciative of America and Americans. And I think that's one of the reasons that we have become so prosperous and powerful is because we've always had a heart and mind to protect the Jewish people. And I know there have been times and periods of anti-Semitism, but as a general rule, we have protected them and protected their right to practice their religion. And then whenever um, 
the state of Israel came up, Harry Truman, our president, was the very first world leader to recognize the independent state of Israel. And I think that's one of the reasons that we haven't collapsed or fallen apart. It may be the only reason that we haven't collapsed, right? And so it's distressing when you see these kind of things coming up in our own nation. Well, this is the world that David lived in too. All of the nations around them wanted to destroy him and to destroy all of uh, the nation of Israel. So let's make this point. Number one, an enemy of Israel was considered to be an enemy of God. Boy, don't you wish you could get Muslim nations to understand that? It would solve a lot of problems. Don't you wish you could get terrorists to understand that? It would solve an awful lot of problems. But the Bible says in verse 8, your hand will find all of whose enemies? He doesn't call them Israel's enemies, even though they are. He goes ahead and he moves to a deeper and a higher level. Your, right, your hand will find all of your enemies. So if you want to be an enemy of the Jew, you're an enemy of God. If you want to be an enemy of the state of Israel, you make yourself to be an enemy of God. And it's not going to go well for you if you take that kind of, of stance. And uh, in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord said to Abraham, the father of the Jews, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And the world just can't figure that out. And they don't believe it. And they think, well, it may have been true for a previous generation or a previous empire, but it won't be true for us. We're too strong, too wise, too powerful. And our God is stronger than the God of Israel. And it always is a clash of deities, isn't it? From, from ancient times till now. It's always about their God versus someone else's God. And uh, it, it never works out well for all of this. David says that they cannot hide from him. They cannot deceive him. It's not like if you just keep it on the inside. You know, the president of Harvard University, when confronted about these protests, said, is, is that a part of... Uh, Harvard's policy or anything like that. And she said, only if they act on it. Only if they act on it. So we try to play this game that you can think it and you can feel that way and you can be against a group of people. Of course, you can't do that against women. You can't do that against homosexuals. You can't do that against LGBTQ people. You can't do that against minorities. You can't do that against immigrants or anything like that. But if it's a Jew, then just as long as you think it, but you don't do anything about it, then it's no big deal. Shout all your slogans, do all of your protests, and intimidate people all you want. I mean, it's, it's a little bit hypocritical, but uh, then again, that's nothing new. And so uh, think about what this is saying in here. You can't hide that from God. God knows how you feel. God knows how you think. God knows what you really would do if you could get away with it. And so many times we find that there are people who would do far worse than anything that's ever been done if they only thought they could. I remember in the days of the Cold War, our pastor was preaching. He said, why don't the Russians invade the United States? And he paused and he said, because they don't think they can. And that's a restraint that we have 
in a lot of ways. There are a lot of people that would rob your house if they thought they could get away with it. There are a lot of people that might try to hurt you if they thought they could get away with it. And David is saying here, the Lord knows. And even those people that are enemies of the Jews and enemies of Israel, but they're smart enough not to say it, David says, yet you know. They cannot deceive you. They cannot hide it from you. And some people in David's day would pretend to be a friend of the Jews and a supporter of the Jews, but that's not the way they acted. That's not the way things actually went. I think we've got some people in our own government that are like that, that they say the right things, but deep in their heart and with their actions and with the money they spend, they're not really all that committed to backing up Israel. And guess what? They're not deceiving the Lord. They are uh, not hidden. He will find them by his hand. And uh, notice here that they are not just against David, but they are actually opposing God. And again, I made reference to, to Genesis 12. And it says in there, and I quote, I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. Now, let me ask you a question. A little tiny nation in the Middle East doesn't have any oil or anything like that. It's not like the Arab nations. And yet, when you think about them as being about, uh, well, in America, they're only 2% of our population, and there's something like that in the world population, just tiny, tiny, tiny Yet, have you ever looked up how many Nobel Prize winners are Jews? Have you ever looked to see how many statesmen are Jews? Have you ever stopped to look at how many people that rise up in industry and inventors and scientists and people like that are Jews? It is amazing the impact that the Jewish race has had upon America and also on the world when they are such a tiny minority. And that's what Hitler said in Mein Kampf, which is translated my struggle, which the Arabs, jihad and Islam and all of that has to do with their struggle. They kind of have picked up on his things and that's why they hate the Jews. Hitler blamed the Jews for every problem that Germany had. And so we uh, kind of find that that's nothing new. That's been going on for a long time. And what a great, great race of people they are. And when God said, I'll bless them for your sake, boy, he sure has done it. And it's been amazing what all they have accomplished. In fact, it's just amazing that there are any Jews. So many people have tried to wipe them out. So many people have attacked them. And how in the world do they repel all of the different nations and the terrorists and all of the people in the United Nations that vote against them all the time? A lot of anti-Semitism, and yet they're still there. And they prosper in just about everything that they do. Why? Because if you become an enemy of Israel, you are an enemy of God himself. Number two, the enemies of Israel are no match for God's protection. Notice he says, your right hand. Now, sorry to all of you who are like my wife and you're a lefty, but in the Bible and in ancient times, when they talked about the hand of power, it was a hand that most of us have as our dominant hand. I know not everybody, but most of us. And the right hand was seen as the hand of power, strength, authority, 
that type of thing. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father, that place of authority, that place of power. And David says, you're not going to hit them with a left. Your right hand will find those who hate you. You're going to deal with them. They're not going to get away with it, in other words. And and that's a way of David saying that there are more victories to come. The ones in the past, we would rather not go to war, but we probably will, and when we do, we'll have God's protection once again. And so the right hand of God, the power of God, is going to be with us. Now, certainly there were setbacks. Israel became two nations after uh, Solomon's death. And remember, the northern one was uh, the ten tribes that made up the nation of Israel. And every king they had was a wicked king. And then Judah was the southern kingdom. And they had a few good kings, um, a majority of bad ones, but a few good ones and a few periods of revival. Both of them ended up being taken away as captives. Okay? Now, what was the deal with that? Because they sinned. They would not listen to the prophets. They would not follow the word of God. They stubbornly continued on in what they were doing. They were doing all kinds of despicable things. It wasn't just that they, you know, they kind of had a little Buddha thing on their bookshelf or something like that. Now, to a Jew, that would have been abhorrent and you shouldn't have something like that. But they were actually bowing down to false gods the false gods of the Canaanites. And a lot of the things they did had to do with child sacrifice. It had to do with the death of, of babies and children. Just a horrific type thing. It had to do with sexual sin and sexual perversion. There's a, one part where it talks about uh, male prostitutes. One of the kings was taking male prostitutes out of Judah and and, uh, you know, can you imagine that going on in places like Jerusalem and around the temple and all of that? Well, it was. And the prophets would come and they would preach, repent and get things right or destruction is coming. And uh, why does God give warnings about destruction? Well, the only reason you would ever warn about judgment is because you're wanting people to repent. You're giving them an opportunity to escape the judgment of God. And he warned them time and time and time again. And what did they do? They stubbornly continued in their sinful ways. You know, uh, everybody likes to quote Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans for good and not for evil, to give you for your welfare and not your calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Oh, that is so great, isn't it? Have you ever read it in context? God says that to the Jews while, he, while they are being marched off to Babylon, while they're being destroyed. Jeremiah 29. Uh, look this up in your Bible so that you see the whole thing. That is not saying everything's going to be great. Everything's going to be rosy. You're going to have a great life and everything's going to go your way. This is what God says to the prophet Jeremiah while they are being slaughtered, while their temple is being destroyed and plundered, while the walls of their city are being torn apart, and while the best and the brightest of their people are either being killed or they're marched off to Babylon and the land is completely overrun and decimated. Look at verse 10. For thus says the Lord, After seventy years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you, 
and I will perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. Seventy years? Seventy years? What if you cried out to God tonight and God said to you, I'll answer that prayer in seven decades. Most of us wouldn't be around, would we? You know, that's what he was saying here. There are a lot of people that are living today when Nebuchadnezzar has come in and you're going to die. And a lot of people died in captivity. But God said, regardless, I'll keep my promise to the ones that remain. Well, a whole lot of them were never going to see this particular promise. Think about that. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. Well, sure didn't look like it. Sure doesn't feel like it. To give you a future and a hope. See, if you just put that on a bumper sticker, it sounds great. When you put it in context, that's the Lord telling the people where most of you are going to die. Most of you will never see this land again. But even though I am angry with your sin, I have not forgotten the covenant that I made with your father Abraham. And we'll get back to it in about 70 years. It's going to be a hard road to hoe because of your sin. It's going to be tough. Because of your sin, because of your failure to listen to the prophets and obey the word of God. It's going to be rough. It's going to be rough on the ones who come back after 70 years. It's going to be the rough on the ones that remain in there. It's a long, long time. But I haven't changed. And the covenant is still intact. In fact, verse 12 gives this promise. Then, after 70 years, you will call upon me. And go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. How long has it been since Israel or Judah had sought the Lord with the whole heart? A long, long, long time. Oh, they'd play the game. And they would uh, offer their lambs. And then run to a Asherah pole and do all kinds of sexual immorality. They would come and they would burn a ram or a, a bull or a goat. And they would have the feast. And then they would run off and they would go to one of the temples of Baal. And they would participate in all kinds of ungodly, horrible, occultic type things. And God says, no, you're going to learn your lesson after 70 years. You know, you know something that's really amazing after this? When the tribe of Judah and Benjamin came back into the land after 70 years, one thing happened. They never worshipped another idol again. Been a huge problem. Even back when they were taken out of Egypt, what was the first thing they did when Moses went on Sinai? Make us gods that we can bow down to. And they made the golden calf. I mean, just a constant problem with idolatry. But after the Babylonian exile, no more of that. They learned that lesson. Now, it didn't completely get them right because they had a real problem with self-righteousness when you read Jesus and his interaction with the Pharisees but no idolatry anymore they learn that lesson and God said well if you search for me with all your heart then I will be found by you says the Lord and I will bring you back from your captivity and I will gather you from all the nations and from 
all of the places where you have been driven, where I have driven you, notice he takes responsibility, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. So next time you think and you want to put in somebody's you know, little note, Jeremiah 29, 11, think twice. Think twice. That verse is true even when you're being decimated and carried to captivity and it's a death sentence. That verse is still true. And that's what God was doing to encourage them in the midst of all of that. And most people don't realize that because they look in their Bible and they, and they never think of context. They never try to get the point. They just try to get something that they can put on a bumper sticker or on a Facebook meme and they don't even understand it. And so that verse is very, very serious and written even in the midst of the wrath of God. I think it's in the book of Hosea. It's either Hosea or Habakkuk. It starts with an H, I know, where it says, in wrath, remember mercy. And that's what Jeremiah 29, 11 really is. The wrath of God, and there's a little island of mercy in it and a little bit of hope that most of them would never, ever see. So number three, notice this. God is not apathetic to anti-Semitism. Look at verse 9. You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. God is angry toward people that hate the Jews. And those who persecute the Jews. Those who try to commit genocide. You remember Haman in the book of Esther? He was so mad at Mordecai because Mordecai wouldn't bow down before him and because he was mad at Mordecai he wanted to kill all of the Jews he built a big big gallows where he could hang them on and they could have public ex execution of all of those Jews those rebellious stubborn Jews one person offended him he's going to kill all of them well after Esther exposed his plot what happened kind of like this verse Haman was hung on his own gallows. Think about that. And when you think about all of the people in the Holocaust and the government and Hitler and all of those people that were putting Jews in the gas ovens and all of those kind of things, can you imagine what it must be like for them in hell tonight? And can you imagine the fires that they are facing and the memories that they have and oh i wonder what it is going to be like for some of them when they are called up out of hell in revelation 20 and they are going to stand before the lord jesus himself a jew can you imagine and so uh, david is calling for and talking about the anger of the lord toward those who hate the jews now don't forget, in the midst of that, we have to harmonize these verses. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Now, don't forget that, but that's not the only verse about God in the Bible. And some people kind of have the idea that being slow to anger... They think that that means there is no anger. Well, slow to anger does not mean no anger. And it's just a it's graciousness that holds him back. And some people will sin and they say, well, God didn't do anything about it. 
And somebody said one time, it's like an archer pulling back on the bow. The more he pulls back, the harder the arrow is going to hit whenever it comes. And they don't understand that because God is merciful toward them now, they need to repent and they need to get right with God. It doesn't mean that God is not going to do anything and it doesn't mean that it is not going to be severe. A lot of people are testing the Lord and tempting the Lord. And there comes a time when God just says, enough. And if God did that to Israel and Judah, remember the captivity they were in, then what's going to happen to those who are actual enemies of God? I mean, if God judges his own people and disciplines his own people, what do you think awaits the people that are not the people of God? Well, it's a good question. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul writes, and this is in the New Testament, the God of the New Testament is not a different God from the Old Testament. One uh, person said that the God of the New Testament is a more mature God than the God of the Old Testament. He was just learning to be God in the Old Testament. Now he's kind of got it in the New and he's a lot nicer. That's ridiculous. Same God. 1 Thessalonians 1.6 Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. God's got his eye on those people who are troubling you and troubling the Jews, troubling Israel. And it is a righteous thing for God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. It's just a matter of time, folks. And that's why we've got to share the gospel with people. They don't know where they're going. They don't know what awaits them. They think they're going to die and go into nothingness. Or they think they're going to die and there's going to be a rowboat and a bright light and pretty music and all of that. And can you imagine when they believe those kind of things what it must be like to close your eyes in death and your next conscious thought is separation from God in hell and torment for eternity. And it's a righteous thing. It's not a capricious thing. It's righteous. It's just. It's deserved. And then it says in Isaiah chapter 34, verses 1 and 2. Come near, you nations, to hear, and heed, you people. Let the earth hear, and all that is in it, the world, and all things that come forth from it. For the indignation of the Lord is against all nations and his fury against their armies. There comes a point in time where the armies of the Lord are going to meet with the Lord himself. When you read in the book of Revelation, you find out that in that valley of Megiddo, or Armageddon as we call it, there's going to be armies and kings that are gathered there for a war and then Jesus is going to come back. And all of those people that were fighting each other in that valley, they're going to turn toward fighting the Lord. And the Bible says they will be destroyed with a sword that comes out of his mouth. Can you imagine? They don't know what they're up against. And they have no idea. They think they are so strong. And yet we remember that Jesus, before Pilate, told him, 
You couldn't have any authority if it didn't come from God. Paul said in Romans 13, there is no authority except that which is appointed by God. So any power they have is limited. Any power they have is temporary. And that power that they have is no match for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, as we think about these things, and think about people that are going to face the Lord in judgment, that should be our motivation to really pray for them and our motivation to share the gospel. That's their only deliverance from any of this, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation through His blood. And number four, the last thing, the nations that hate Israel have a certain future. What is that certain future? says, the Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath and the fire shall devour them. Well, I put that on a bumper sticker, right? That doesn't sound very pleasant, but get it sure. God has promised he's going to do that. And we need to get it in our minds. The promises of God are not all lollipops and gumdrops and all of that kind of thing. The negative things are promises true too, and God is true to his word so let's wrap this up one of my favorite christmas hymns is uh, of course i heard the bells on christmas day their old familiar carols play but the one the the verse that i like the best it says then pealed the bells more loud and deep god is not dead nor doth he sleep the wrong shall fail the right prevail with peace on earth goodwill toward men can anybody say amen to that do you realize that, cause, that calls for destruction of all of God's enemies? If you, have a tr- if you have trouble with the wrath of God, then you have to remember whenever you say amen to something like that, that's what you're calling for, just like David did. And evil will be completely gone one of these days. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, it says, The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. See, the world thinks that they're going to go to hell and have a party. Not even the devil gets to do that. It's the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels and all whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. So what about us? Does God like our sin? Is he cool with our sin? No, not in the least. He hates it just as much as he does in a lost person. That's why he punished Jesus in your place. And he was punished so severely even though he had done nothing wrong. That's what Christmas is all about. The coming of a Savior. God loves you, but he hates your sin. And that's why the Bible says in this... The love of God was made manifest or shown among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God. We should. That's only normal. But He loved us. That's amazing. And sent His Son to be the propitiation. That is the wrath absorber for us he absorbed the wrath that we deserve and he is the propitiation for our sins and that's in 1 John chapter 4 verses 9 and 10 so when we look at that we realize that when we ever say oh one of these days evil will be gone it'll be so great do you realize what you're calling for 
the righteousness of God to destroy all evil. It's not just the devil, it's all who follow him. And so David said, when I look at that, I see the love and the grace of God. And it's applied toward Israel, destroying Israel's enemies. And we as the people of God need to think of the same way. That that horrible thing that makes us shudder and we can't quite comprehend is the very thing that is going to preserve us for all eternity. And that's what's going to make heaven so sweet. We will be free from the penalty of sin. We don't have to fear hell. We'll be free from the power of sin and that's what God is doing in your life now in sanctification he's making you to where you are more powerful over sin than you've ever been and you're learning not to give into it and then one of these days when the Lord returns you will be taken to heaven and you will be free from the very presence of sin for eternity but understand there's two sides of the coin and all of that that shows love and grace and peace and joy. And whoo, isn't it wonderful? There's another side of that coin. Not for everybody. Because the Lord does judge those who are his enemies. Just like he did with Israel. So that ought to motivate us. Especially at this time of year. As we think about people who don't know the story of Jesus. That we sang about earlier. They don't know why Jesus came. They don't know that he purchases sinners like us with his own blood and that we're only saved by the grace of God not because we deserve it and we're uh, we access that grace simply through faith they don't know they don't know that so they're trying to live their life the best way they can and then they just make excuses well everybody fails everybody messes up and God is a loving God how could a loving God send anyone to hell they need to read some other verses Okay, And we need to tell them the story, don't we? May God help us to be able to do that. Will you bow with me in prayer? Lord, as we think about all of this, it's easy for us to just kind of glibly say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, these verses don't say that. These verses say that if you're an enemy of God and an enemy of the people of God, you got big trouble coming your way. And they don't believe it. And in many cases, they don't know about it because we don't talk about it much. But we did tonight. Change our lives so that we understand just how much you hate sin. And if sin were no big deal, you wouldn't have sent your son. If sin were just a little kind of a blip on the radar screen that you could overlook, you never would have had your son be nailed to a cross and suffer not only the physical agony, but the spiritual agony when you turned your back on him and poured your wrath out upon him in our place. Help us to understand that the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus tells us one thing. You're serious about sin. You hate sin. Help us to hate it as well. And thank you, Lord, that it is in your righteous anger that you protect us from the evil one and you protect us from your enemies that would come against us. So, Lord, we pray for peace in Israel. We pray for Jewish people to come to know the Messiah of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray for us that you would help us to love you more, to serve you, and to testify of you everywhere we go. People are lost without the gospel of Christ. Let us not be ashamed of the gospel as Romans 1.16 says. And bless us. And thank you for this time together tonight. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.